Systeria is supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. If you like Systeria, why not check out The Rereaders, a fortnightly literary and cultural podcast at www.therereaders.com. The power of the women in the room. This sounds like a COVID. Welcome to Sisteria. On this week's podcast, we were joined by Jess Alice, who I'll introduce in a moment. Sisteria is a podcast about women's experiences as creators and consumers of arts and culture. I'm Stefan Schilt. I'm Ronnie Sullivan. And thanks for joining us today, especially you, Jess. Thanks for coming all the way in. Oh, my God. Hi, guys. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) That's how we started, I think, with Amy Gray as well. It's the only way to start. (laughs) Just very, very excited about everything about this. Yeah, it's very exciting to have you in. Obviously, um, you're a very busy person which is something that we're going to touch on today. So we thank you so much for taking the time to come in. Uh, Jess, we want to start by shining the spotlight on you. How are you feeling about that? Oh, like pretty good. Um, Like I just feel like I'm in your very capable hands and I'll do whatever you want me to do. That's your first mistake. (laughs) Um, Actually, before we get on to the spotlight segment, I just wanted to give a shout out to our amazing producer, Izzy Roberts-Orr, who's just been announced as the... Uh, co-CEO and Artistic Director of the Emerging Writers Festival. We're very proud of you, Izzy. <laughs> what a legend! Yeah, so I just wanted to um, let everyone know because we are very proud. So, Jess, you kind of do a bit of everything. I want to read your bio, but it's actually quite large. So you're a writer, editor and broadcaster from Melbourne. Um, you're a poet. You write essays and criticism. You've been published in The Guardian. Metro Magazine, Overland, Junkie, Vice, Lifted Brow, Spook, The Victorian Writer, Voiceworks and Cordite Poetry Review. I didn't even get to have a breath then. Um, you're also the Program Manager of the Melbourne Writers Festival, the Chair of the Cat Musket Fellowship Custodial Committee. Uh, you were the Co-Director of the National Young Writers Festival. You were a previous presenter on radio. How do you find all the time to do all this stuff? Um, well, it's, you know, I think everyone does... You know, in the arts, everyone does all of these things at the same time. Like, I think that's just, maybe it's not wise, but I mean, it is kind of totally normal. Um, And I think that I am just a bit of a generalist, really, um, and that I get excited about things very quickly and then uh, enjoy working hard on things and getting good at them and feeling like you uh, can, yeah, do and make lots of different things. Um, And I just sort of follow what feels good to work on. And I guess that does mean that I often end up going in a few different directions sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. We just had Alicia sometimes in for our previous episode and she said a very similar thing and she Mm -hmm. does a lot and she's also kind of a poet. So we wanted to maybe spend the first part of our discussion with you talking about your poetry practice primarily. Um, How did you get into poetry? I know that kind of sounds like a bit of a naff question, but I think the idea of poetry might seem a bit foreign to some people. Um, Being a poet is like an abstract 
kind yeah. of concept. And in fact, um, side note, but Ali Cobby Eckerman won a huge prize yesterday, yes. the Wyndham Campbell Massive. Prize. And the the headline in The Guardian was Unemployed Poet Wins <laughs> Prize. And, you know, I mean, she she's a poet, and but that's not considered a job in, yep. a, in and of itself. It's like yeah, unemployed a, poet. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I guess that kind of links to, yeah, to that question then, Steph. Well, I didn't know that you could be a poet. Um, like in school, in high school, I was writing poetry on my Yahoo GeoCities website, um, which is like the, like I think some of the first kind of websites you could make on the internet. Did it have a ticker um, for like how many people had visited the site? I mean, you had an option for the ticker, but would you really put the ticker on it if it just said like two? <laughs> <laughs> and it's you refreshing. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> so no, I didn't. Although my, my URL on it was um, yahoo.com forward slash GeoCities forward slash black underscore lace underscore emerald underscore absinthe. Oh, my God. <laughs> There's because... so much to unpack there. <laughs> because you were deep. Because I was a big goth. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, so, like, it had a black background and I think, like, lime green and purple text on it. Anyway, so I was writing poetry um, on this terrible website um, and not really not really sharing it with that many people because, you know, who, who did I have to share it with? Just... If you didn't have a ticker, you don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure that I did. Like, I tried it out a few times. <laughs> I tested it. It wasn't, it wasn't worth it. Um, and I, uh, after school, I, I went into fashion design and realized that I hated sewing and then dropped out. And then um, I had discovered that there was a professional writing and editing diploma at TAFE. Um, and I ended up going back to school and did that. Um, and it was amazing. And I, I did a poetry course. Uh, and my uh, lecturer took us to... Um, a poetry reading at the time, a really great legendary reading called The Spinning Room um, that was on in South Yarra. Um, and it was great. And I just met a whole bunch of poets and um, just started hanging out at those sorts of readings. And really it just meant that I spent a lot of time in pubs uh, <laughs> because all the readings are in pubs. Uh, and just, You're a student, you're in pubs. Yeah. It makes sense. Uh, it's and, kind of a natural progression really. <laughs> and, just, and just wrote a lot. And then um, I ended up uh, hosting a poetry radio show um, on 3CR in Melbourne called Spoken Word, which is still running to this day. It's been running for ages. Um, yeah, and then I worked for journals. Um, I started at VoiceWorks as a poetry editor and um, I've worked for a few different publications, Lifted Brow, um, and I was uh, most recently editing, editing poetry for Scum for a couple of years. So, and like now, now it just seems to me like it's the most natural thing in the world and it's the, it's the art form that I feel um, most intimately um, tied to and it's the art form that makes the most sense to me like on an intuitive sort of level um, but it is one of those things that like at one stage I just didn't even know that it existed and a lot of people don't know that it exists. Yeah, well, I mean, poetry books have, you know, even the the biggest poetry book is a very relative thing because the print run's going to be tiny. And unfortunately, the audience of people who are willing to pay money for poetry in Australia is very, very small. It's a very impassioned community. And that's why you have these pubs and these, you know, community radio stations. And that's where people congregate to. But it's in terms of its size, it's it's a small 
small space. Interestingly, though, I think like uh, poetry in print is, you know, like still struggling a bit, even though there are some um, like Cordite is doing that great um, series. Um, they're into their second series now with some great books. Um, so there is like print poetry happening and um, will always happen. But I feel like in the last year or so, um, like spoken word poetry has just found a much larger and broader audience online, like particularly online. There's been like, um, like Kara Lindsay Bird from New Zealand had a poem go viral on the internet and um, Patricia Lockwood a couple of years ago had a poem called The Rape Joke that went really big all around the world and I guess also um, because poetry is so closely tied to politics and is like such a great um, form uh, for political dissent and expression. Um, because of everything that's going on now, I, I think people are turning often to poets for that kind of like um for that sort of discourse yeah Yeah. you wrote a little bit about that for overland late last year and how kind of the mainstream have almost you said poetry is having a moment um and that kind of apple's iphone used maya angelou um, beyonce obviously has used spoken words and it's an extraordinary time particularly at this horrible political moment why do you think that is why do you think they are so closely attuned so my my thought on it is that um that poetry is innately about it's about truth and it's about precision um and when we live in such dispiriting political times where, I mean, in Australia, we have such uninspiring political leaders and in the States, uh, they have leaders who are using words in this ridiculous way where they don't mean anything. Well, no one knows anything more than Trump. Like, that's his right. constant, like, recycled. No one, no one cares about women more than me. No one cares about this more than me. No one does more for people with disability than me over and over again. So nothing, like, nothing means anything unless words are being abused. Well, obviously, because that's wrong. <laughs> like, right, it's right. fundamentally wrong. And, and like, language is being abused or is being used in, in really unimaginative ways. Um, so poetry is, is, you know, lyrical and beautiful, um, but it's also concerned with being exact. Like, po- poetry is about using the, you know, like, the maybe the fewest amount of words in, in the best possible way. Um sometimes um and it's about uh really really getting to the to the truth of something um it's using language to convey something that is um beyond the everyday existence something that's slightly higher and transcendental um and pure um and i think that because we know that that's what poetry does um people are just like desiring that sort of level of of language like they're they're craving that potential of language um and for that authenticity um from a speaker Mm. um maybe everything that poets say um isn't necessarily true (laughs) um and they may come from uh you know different uh political uh perspectives um but you can always be assured of the uh, of the authenticity of the poet um, that they are saying what they believe mm. and that they are, through that art form, striving um, to tell you exactly what they mean. And I think that that's quite rare in the way that language is used more broadly, especially in politics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ashley Judd's kind of nasty woman, I was going to say rant, but it is actually a 
spoken word poem. piece. Yeah, it's amazing. And how that kind of went crazy viral at the after the Women's March was just like another example of this that you're talking about. Sorry, I just trailed yeah, off. No, there. absolutely. <laughs> and I think that was actually written by a college student, that piece that Ashley Judd read. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that's coming from someone who's maybe really young and doesn't necessarily have like a lot of life experience or, you know, hasn't achieved these great heights of fame to be able to be on stage at that march. But her words can be heard and can reach all these people and touch all these people in a really powerful way. It's kind of a testament to what Jess was saying. And maybe it's something about the fact that by by putting those things into into that form, into a poem, uh, it's distilling what people are thinking on a are f- thinking and feeling on a really like um, uh, broad scale, like on a mass scale. Like everyone um, has these like frustrations and um, uh, is is feeling disenfranchised or frustrated or um, seeking some sort of like change and action. Um, but it's hard to articulate those things or it's it's so hard when there's so much going on. Um, but a poem can really distill those feelings um, into a moment. Um, and maybe the fact that it's it's a spoken word especially is, is sort of ephemeral, that it can present these feelings and in that moment that you experience the poem, um, it's like something is realised and shared. It's kind of an interesting kind of primal sense that comes out of it right like the idea of sharing oral histories and and stories through culture which I think is is a particularly interesting element I think that um like primal is an interesting way to put it because there's like because of so many qualities of poetry like the the musicality of it um and there's something quite like bodily about it it's it sort of exists on the one hand it's it's so cerebral um but on the other hand it's entirely bodily and it and it reaches to a place before and after language it, mm. it's um outside of language um that i think like that's where it, its appeal lies even if you maybe aren't um if you haven't been exposed to poetry in your education um or if you don't really know anything about um you know poetic techniques or anything like that um there is something that appeals on a very um on a very sort of like bodily level that is is easy to understand. Mm. I think especially when you have that liberating, like I remember at school, the, the you know, doing poetry or studying poetry and that liberating point where they go, okay, here are all these different structures of poems and you don't actually have to use them at all. Like you can do whatever you want and you can break things up and chop things up and you can have one syllable on a line or whatever, um, that, that there are all these structures in these um, traditions, but then it's actually a form that's like completely evolving constantly and that you can do with it whatever you want to do in order to say what you want to say. Mm. Do you think that's why, because what is interesting to me is just having spoken to you right now and you talking about the start of your practice being online on GeoCities, Yahoo, um, and then us talking about how popular it's becoming through kind of viral social media and people watching things on, on YouTube. Do you think there's a kind of the uprising and the connection between the interest in poetry and social media collide in some way? Do you think that that's helping the the kind of plight of poetry as such? I guess so. I, I guess it does because, um, like, the internet, um, as it's done for, like, like in so many other ways, it's this kind of, like, democratising medium um, that allows access to, um, like, so much information uh, and so much connection to everyone. Um, if, yeah, if, if, I mean, if uh, 
the only access to poetry that we had was was in books for instance um there's so many um ways there's so many ways that people um wouldn't be able to access that Mm. just um because of all of the obvious reasons um it's one of those um like i think that it is a little bit of a um what's the word like it's maybe considered a truism sometimes that poetry is difficult um I don't really think that it is like I think there's a perception that it is and maybe that is what makes it so Mm. um but rather I think that like I mean poetry flourishes in minority communities right Mm -hmm. like because it's such a um because it is such a not a malleable form but you know it can be like you said like you can choose any style um there's so many variations that it can take um it's something that anyone can access so by having it online it's something that everyone can find um like video like particularly I think has been the thing that has very recently made that different by I guess video becoming so big on like um in a like in Facebook's quest to kill YouTube um (laughs) like video is is now like like the um the medium and so like that's doing very well for spoken word poets yeah um because it's being seen by more and more people um yeah so we'll move on to broads crit which is when we talk about an evergreen topic and we thought we'd get you in today to have a chat about programming there's a little alliteration today isn't there politics poetry programming because in your role at the melbourne writers festival you're a programmer did you want to kind of explain to people obviously our producer has experience as a programmer as well Ronnie and my co-host also works on a festival so but a lot of people kind of maybe don't know the idea of what a programmer Hmm. is kind of and what it sounds like um to the realities of it did you want to kind of run through what your job entails uh so a programmer uh basically builds the um or curates uh, the artistic element of the festival. So um, it's about uh, creating events and um, uh, creating art, like uh, a lineup of artists. Um, and I guess also um, thinking strategically and thematically about what a festival will achieve. So things like um, identifying themes um, and topics and uh, then, yeah, building a, a program out of that. And I'm really interested in how you do this for what for the Melbourne Writers Festival is a huge audience, like tens of thousands of people. Mm. Um, that you're you're trying to create something that so many people can access and so many people can enjoy. Um, how you can kind of hold that, uh, you know, those priorities in in mind, and at the same time bring your own personal creative vision to the the role of programming. So you know you might want to just have 10 poetry events <laughs> or you know like make the whole festival kind of have a feminist slap but how do you kind of find that balance of like reining in and and potentially sometimes programming things that you don't necessarily agree with or just don't think are interesting but somehow tapping into what people want to see and want to hear it is melbourne writers festival is a really big festival uh last year um the audience was uh something like uh, over seventy thousand people uh came to the festival so it's it's really huge um hundreds and hundreds of artists um and events um every year uh i mean i guess 
I guess it involves having a vision that is, on the one hand, um, very like high level and strategic, um, where you're thinking about what you want the festival to achieve. Um, and, and how you're going to do that. Um, but then also um, on the much uh, much more focused level, um, you need to be so intimately familiar with all of the tiny parts mm. um, to make that whole thing come together. Um, Poet, poets were really excited when I when I started working for the Melbourne Rise Festival because I think they did think that I was going to somehow co-opt the whole thing into just a poetry festival. <laughs> um, and of course, there will be um, there will be poetry in the program, um, but I mean, you know, it is a massive audience, so. I guess it's always thinking about um, who your audience is um, and what they want, but also about who are those audiences that you're trying to reach that you don't already have access to um, and who do you want to be bringing in. Um, I guess being a programmer, on the one hand, you, you bring your own... Uh, your own interests and like niche subjects that you're into um, but it's not really just uh, it's not just your brain that's making the thing it's also about um, being able to uh, identify what a good or new idea is but also about knowing where to go to find other good ideas um, knowing who else can contribute to that vision like what other communities you should be speaking to um, who else can help you build a thing? Um, and MWF's really good at that. Like they have community advocacy, yeah, input, don't they? Yeah, there's. Um, we have a, um, a a programming advisory committee that's made up of um, like industry professionals, writers, and um, academics and journalists and all that sort of thing. We have audience advocates who are members of the general public who. Um, uh, help us with looking at the program um and also just uh within the melbourne writers festival as um an organization is um uh, prog- uh very um very open with programming and uh everyone is invited to to, to bring their ideas and to um to contribute to the festival mm. that's amazing i mean on a purely practical level you need m- multiple people because it's such a big festival you can't read every single book that's published in a given year and know what the best things are going to be to pick out and, you know. Right. And also, like, having just, like, an encyclopedic knowledge of books or the publishing industry doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to create an exciting program. So I, I think a lot of it is about just knowing um, – finding the balance between things that you know um, will be exciting and great for that everyone will like, but also trying to find things that will challenge and surprise them. And maybe it's something that people didn't think that they would be interested in, but if you can find it and, and communicate it in a way, it can be something totally weird and cool and exciting. Mm. So you learn these skills, obviously, on the job, and this isn't your first programming job if people were interested in pursuing that field how how would you suggest they start so I'm thinking more around the National Young Writers Festival for instance and the work that you did with them someone asked me this the other day and I just realized I don't know because like uh I mean I studied um I studied creative writing um and I maybe initially thought that I wanted to be an editor so I did a lot of editing um but I guess there's so many um like with programming and curation like a lot of it I think is just about 
uh, it's it's sort of similar um, in that you're working with so many different artists and I mean editing is probably like an interesting crossover because you're in a way um, you're curating a publication like a a journal or a magazine or something managing egos and (laughs) managing those writer egos oh my god the hugest egos in the world we can say this from both sides of the fence yeah just because we have those huge egos as well (laughs) and I can probably also say that the poets are the worst (laughs) (laughs) bless the poets I'm one of them I mean, I guess it's one of those things where, like, in the arts, um, there isn't really, a, I don't think there is usually a linear progression. Um, I think rarely um, do people study the thing and then work in the thing that they want to work in. Um, usually it's like Succeed a Succeed in the thing, take over the world, <laughs> retire. <Yeah. laughs> like Profit. Yeah, profit. What is that P word? <laughs> Not in the arts. No. It's like it's much more zigzaggy. Um, and often it's uh, moving between things until you um, – and maybe it's about like following what interests you and, and feels good until you find the thing that you're really interested in or, you know, some of the things that you're really interested in. Um, but I, I guess that I, I probably um, – yeah, it, it probably was a path of, say, um, being a writer um, – like having my own creative practice and then uh, working as an editor and then yeah and then and having an interest in in festivals and wanting to um create something big and and being interested in events I guess having things that are physical and outside in the real world that that physically bring people together because I think that that is one of the like that's a magical thing about festivals um and one of the things that I dearly love about the National Young Writers Festival um in Newcastle is that it's this real like pilgrimage um that people make from all over the country and descend into Newcastle castle for this long weekend that's this sort of like you know fun party that's good on a spiritual level of like writers and editors and artists um and bringing people together in that really like community way is just like glorious Mm. and um festivals just really excite me because you you bring everyone together and you're essentially just celebrating like knowledge and ideas um and talking about like all of the all of the bizarre and, and amazing things that you find out from books um, in a really like kind of um, in a way where you're like inviting people to come in and talk about it. And like, that's just so exciting to me that we, that we can create these um, this thing um, that brings people together to just share their interests in, mm. in real like niche stuff. Yeah. And especially because writing is by its nature so solitary, you know, for a majority of the time. And there are, you know, a lot of writers, they have the egos, sure. Some of them are shy, but a lot of them are incredibly social as well. And people, and in sharing, you know, their creative work or just being around other people who are interested in the same things is such a treat. It's such a generosity, I think, to have people share what they love and like isn't it one like one of my favorite things in the world is to get a person and to to see them talk about something that they really care about and are really excited about and you can see like the the watching it right now (laughs) (laughs) you can see like the energy of a person of a person change like you can just be talking to someone and um and it becomes contagious. Yeah, yeah it's kind of a festival experience, right? And there's yeah, and that's uh, it's yeah, it's it's a wonderful atmosphere, and it's like you see people in their sort of best versions of themselves. Facilitating that 
festival program, though, is intense. Um, obviously, you juggle a lot of things throughout the year, not just the programming. And then when the festival happens, it's kind of you might have to drop all of it and just focus purely on the festival itself. Um, how, in terms of kind of more practical skills, I think time management is something that a lot of people in the arts struggle to deal with. Um, we were talking about burnout a little bit before, and I think we've talked about it previously. How do you find approaching when you're feeling overwhelmed? How do you manage your time? Do you have any kind of practical skills you can offer anyone listening? Yeah, I think you need to know what makes you feel good and what allows you to to find a, a sort of sense of like peacefulness um, because often it and maybe the step before that is um, knowing when you need to do that and being able to know when you're actually feeling like really horribly overwhelmed um, because often that can be like that's the problem right when people don't realize that they're really stressed is mm. it, then it sort of like becomes a real big thing yeah um, so just sort of knowing like knowing when you're when you are becoming overwhelmed by everything that you're working on well it's um, almost like um preempting it and planning for yeah like, and knowing your limits and having that like awareness of yourself and your capabilities which is hard because sometimes you just want to push through and push yourself and see what you're capable of but sometimes that can go too far and then yeah you're not capable of that thing and you find out the hard way yeah and i guess like you're always going to be more like productive you're going to be able to do better work and have better ideas when you're feeling um you know when you're feeling quite like I want to say like well stocked you know like when when you're feeling like, like in a video game and like you have full heart <laughs> yeah when you're when you're on like that's weird because I just went to like cows in a barn eating <laughs> <laughs> lots of hay yeah when you've got like when you're like full health points um you know you I think you you're at your best so I mean, I just, like, go on a lot of walks mm -hmm. and, like, sit on grass in the sun and read. And oh, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's so interesting, Jess, because I remember a conversation that I had with you ages ago that really left an impression on me. And it was when you were co-directing the National Young Writers Festival and you talked about... Uh, recognizing that you were doing this big thing and just taking a step back from your writing work and sort of dealing with being like okay well I'm gonna have to do this huge job maybe I don't do this other thing for a while oh I remember that yeah I remember I um it, it was this massive realization to me that I could just like not do some writing for a while and that was like a really terrifying thought at the time um and seemed like like that's not even an option but it, it's like totally an option because you're like what if people forget about me and no one knows that I'm a writer anymore and it's like <laughs> no people's people have no idea of like time frames for one thing it's like oh you haven't published something for six months I thought I read something last week also everyone's constantly inundated things are always around yeah. now they're yeah. always clickable <sighs> and I think as well part of that is that we have to learn to be able to say no and I think we might have covered that before I know that a lot of um, my colleagues talk about that but so frequently we're just constantly trying to say yes 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 to everything because we're worried that the opportunities will disappear they will especially as women there. yeah absolutely mm. but yeah absolutely the opportunities will always be there so now we'll just do a shout out where we get you Jess or oh, the pressure's on you to recommend something you've been loving it could be food it could be a tv show it could be a poet 
could be some sneakers you just tell us <laughs> ideally a woman yeah involved. yeah 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 i've been watching uh this really great tv show called chewing gum i haven't heard of that enlighten it's, me it's a british series um it's on netflix um it was acquired by netflix and so it's one of the um, netflix originals um there's a second season coming out really soon um it's about this young like early 20s um black british woman living in a council estate and she's got this like ultra religious pentecostal family um and this evangelist boyfriend um who will not have sex with her and she just desperately wants to lose her virginity amazing and it's like is it funny it's just like it's wacky yeah like it's um like it reminds me of maybe shows like maybe like shameless um where it's that whole like set on the estate and um there's none of that sort of like pity porn thing of it there's no like Mm. romanticization of the of the working class it's just this is this is the world that it's in um except it probably where Shameless got kind of like um, quite deep and poignant sometimes, this is just absurd. Yeah, amazing. And like totally fun. And um, like it actually, um, it does have its um, moments of like really great um, sort of like class and and racial politics. Um, But most of all, it's just like this ridiculous adventure of how this um, young woman is just like trying to find out about sex and dating and by like fucking up all of the time in this like and all of the embarrassing shit that she does and it's just wonderful and like we were talking about things that you can do when you're like feeling like overworked or overwhelmed or whatever like for me it's just one of those shows that you can just watch and you it's can watch just chewing gum joyous yeah you gave us a perfect segue there into our uh, segment called Arrogant Arts, where we answer questions that you ask listeners uh, with an authority that we probably don't actually have. It's an exercise in imposter syndrome for all of us. Now, listen to me. Now, listen to me. Now, listen to me. Frontier Psychiatry. I give myself... Very good advice, but I very seldom follow it. You don't need to be helped any longer. You've always had the power to go back to cancer. Frontier Psychiatry. So this week's question is from an anonymous listener. Um, It's about dating etiquette. They write, I'm worried I'm bad at dating. How do you know if there's an etiquette? Is there an etiquette? Jess? Jess? <laughs> yeah, we're looking at you. We've we've got kind of longer-term partners, um, so I haven't dated in a while. I know. Did you hear that? You listening? We haven't gone out on a date in a while. Yet, <laughs> do you know, like, what, what, what do you think they mean by etiquette, though? I guess maybe, like, if you're not in a relationship this is my interpretation if you're not in a relationship and so you haven't had the talk or the many talks that a relationship entails are there established assumptions or like sets of behaviors that you should just be doing as good practice I also find it interesting just as a kind of a little aside how dating has become part of our lingo it was quite an American term I remember having I did kind of some work for Melbourne Writers just a little while ago and I was an artist liaison and I was speaking to um, an author from America and he's like do you guys date here like what do you guys do I'm like well normally we just go and get drunk at parties and make (laughs) out and if you like doing that you keep doing it 
and then you kind of fall into it and you might have the talk or something along those but lines. Maybe but maybe we just didn't have, like, we just didn't have the word, right? Like, we didn't have dating because I think... But I you... never went out to movies or anything. Like, you but know how say, like, with online dating, but you would people go, go out. We had the phrase, like, go out. Like, you were going out with someone. Yeah. Like, I'm going out with him. I'm like, she and I are going out now. Like, we said, we said that. It's Facebook official. <laughs> and you would still, like go to the movies right yes we have dating (laughs) (laughs) um is there an etiquette um I feel like dating etiquette is like the same as life etiquette which is like you just need to be like upfront and cool with people and like treat people well but also make sure that they treat you well and then everything should be fine well it's the balancing act so like this whole kind of theme that we've got throughout this this episode it's like negotiating what you should be giving and what you should be kind of getting from it, um, what you're doing, what they're doing. Yeah. I'm so pleased, pleased that you did emphasise taking care of yourself because, it, you know, you can't be good to anyone else if you're not being good to yourself first. Right. And, like, I mean, also dating is, I mean, really, like, primarily it's about, like, your pleasure, I think. Um, and... And in a way that like someone else works with that and then how you can like um, how you can have a nice time with another person. You can have a nice time together. So like both people need to be like respecting their own like needs and desires primarily in order to make sure that you're achieving that primary goal of having a nice time together and that doesn't mean you have to be a jerk along the way like looking after yourself doesn't mean completely discounting the other person which I think people get confused with a little bit yeah like you just need well, to, idiots get confused yeah like you just have to be like not a jerk and like you've got to be straight up with people and like honest about your intentions and and like actually talk about things yeah. yeah, use your words. Use yeah. your words. A novel concept. Yeah. So well, you make it sound so easy. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be a jerk. That's primary. Use your words. That's yeah. it. That's dating etiquette advice from... I feel like we've answered that question. Oh, my God. Good job, Jeff. At first I was like, like, we, good one. (laughs) We've just sat back and gone, yeah. I mean, yeah, like at first I'm like, etiquette, like that sounds like that could be a really confusing thing. Like there's rules that you need to follow, but really it's just about like not being a dick. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like which fork to use when you're on a date. Yeah. Like Like, open the car. Do whatever you want. Just like be like cute about it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks so much for coming in to, je- to just... To je- to je- to je- to je- oh, my God. This is why I should always have a wine. Okay, cool. Um, thank you so much for coming in today, Jess. We appreciate having you here. Thank you so much for having me. This has been super fun. And it has been super fun. Ronnie, pleasure as always. Thanks, Steph. Thank you, Jess. Thanks for listening to Sisteria. We hope you tune in again soon. Sisteria is created by women for women, but also anyone who wants to listen. For links to everything we've discussed and to get in touch, check out our website, sisteriapodcast.com. You can subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Sisteriapod. Sisteria is produced by me, Izzy roberts and co-presented by the ReReaders and the Melbourne Library Service, supported by Creative Victoria. Our incredible theme music is by Rainbow Chan. The song is called Last and is available on her new record, Spacings. 
Sisteria is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to the elders of the land this podcast reaches. We hope you tune in again soon. Thank you.